When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump! <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the N-word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks, no one but his own kind. He's a witch. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the proud, loving owner of a six foot six boy named Eric, Donald Trump. I'm Leon Nafok, your guest host, until Jacob Weisberg comes back from vacation, which I'm told will be next week. We're recording this on Friday afternoon at the end of a long and painful week that saw two high profile police killings in a terrifying rampage in Dallas that left uh, five law enforcement officers dead. Trump hasn't really been top of mind, uh, not just because there have been more urgent things to think about, but because for once, he has largely declined to put himself at the center of the discussion. He did issue a short statement on the week's events, which said, in words that he almost certainly didn't write himself, that we, quote, must restore the confidence of our people to be safe and secure in their homes and on the street. The statement even included an acknowledgement that what happened in Minnesota and Louisiana was not law enforcement as usual. Uh, he got the details slightly wrong, calling both victims motorists, but he did call uh, the shooting senseless and tragic. So there's that. Anyhow, in light of all that's happened, uh, you can consider this episode a diversion. Uh, in it, I'll be talking to a really interesting guy named J.D. Vance, the author of a new book called Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. J.D. will be talking to us about what the people back home see in Donald Trump, why they relate to him, and what they think he'll deliver if elected president. I hope our conversation gives you a more textured understanding of why Trump's campaign has been so successful. Uh, it certainly did that for me. Before we get to all that, though, let's hear some tweets. And fair warning, since Donald's been a little quiet lately, we dug back into his archive and pulled out a couple of old winners. At Wall Street Journal is bad at math. The good news is nobody cares what they say in their editorials anymore, especially me. I hear that sleepy eyes at Chuck Todd will be fired like a dog from rating-starved Meet the Press. I can't imagine what is taking so long. At Mark Halperin works so hard, but just doesn't have a natural instinct for politics. Others do, and those are the people you want to follow. Uncomfortable-looking NBC reporter Willie Geis calls me to ask for favors, then mockingly smiles when he is told of my high poll numbers. At AP has one of the worst reporters in the business, at Jeff Horowitz. Wouldn't know the truth if it hit him in the face. 
into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Joining me now is J.D. Vance, the author of the new book, Hillbilly Elegy. A graduate of Yale Law School, J.D. now works for Mithril Capital Management, the Silicon Valley investment firm founded by Peter Thiel. J.D., it's great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I think a lot of Slate readers and, and Slate podcast listeners probably feel quite alienated from a lot of Trump supporters, right? They see videos of these massive rallies. They watch these incendiary YouTube clips in which Trump supporters are, are shouting things out and holding angry signs and so on. And they wonder, like, who, who are these people and, and what do they see in this guy? So I want to start by asking you, as, as someone who, you know, who's just written a book about communities in Ohio and Kentucky that are you know, quite alien to, to us, like coastal elites, uh, what are we not understanding about Trump's appeal? Yeah, so, so I think there's, there's both a kind of substance answer and a process answer to this question. I think the substance answer is one that is, is relatively well-trod, but it's worth repeating, which is that for a lot of these folks, even the ones whose, whose lives are relatively intact economically, they live in, in communities that are fundamentally sort of breaking down. To give you a sense, so, um, you know, heroin overdoses are typically thought of as kind of this purview of the inner city ghetto, uh, but it's actually, in, in recent years, white youth are much more likely to die of heroin overdoses than, than black youth. If you look at rates of domestic violence, white working-class women, some of the studies I've seen suggest that white working-class women are more likely to suffer from domestic violence than black working-class women. And I think that if you if you run down the line, if you talk about church attendance rates, white working class church attendance rates have kind of fallen out and really, really bottomed. You add all these things together, I think there's this sense in white working class America that the entire world is falling apart. So even if your life is working out reasonably well, you know, the, the, the community that you live in, whether it's heroin addiction or people not going to church or some basic economic pessimism, which again is higher among white working class folks than anyone else, I think you, you start to get this sense of an existential crisis. And I think Trump is the perfect foil for people who feel like the world is kind of apocalyptically falling apart. You wrote a piece recently for The Atlantic in which you compared Trump to heroin. Uh, and in that piece, you write that, that what Trump offers is an easy escape from the pain. When you, when you say there's a process reason for his appeal, what do you mean? And, and how, how, does, how does that serve as like a salve for, for the pain that these folks are, are feeling? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that a big part of that is the fact that so many of the folks who uh, work and live in Washington, the, the politicians that they see on TV, are kind of culturally alien to, to a lot of, of the people, to a lot of my friends and family back home. And so if, if you think about, let's say, you know, Barack Obama, I, I think that, that one, of the, one of the arguments for why President Obama is so unpopular among the white working class is that, frankly, you know, he's, it, it's a kind of racist or, or xenophobic, you know, reaction to his, his alleged foreign birth or to the color of his skin. I certainly think there's, there's an element of that, and there's certainly some truth to that. But, but really what I pick up on and the real hostility to President Obama 
which is frankly a similar hostility to Hillary Clinton, is that these people are completely unlike us in every imaginable way. The way that they speak, they have these clean, neutral accents, they, they talk in perfect sentences, they have jobs that are incredibly stable, their families are functional, their marriages are intact. And I think most importantly, they are credentialed in a way that is frankly frightening to people back home. In my high school of 450 people, not a single person went to, to an Ivy League school when they graduated for, from high school. I'm the only one who ever made it. I eventually went to Yale Law School. But I, I think that in, in a world where places like Harvard, Yale, the Ivy Leagues are so foreign to people, and then their leaders are just completely credentialed and their lives are intact in a way that's, that's really foreign, I think that breeds this natural suspicion. And so I, I think that one of the things that Trump has been really good about, even though he's obviously elite and kind of his credentials and in his background is he talks like folks back home. You know, he cusses at his rallies. He says things that are kind of outrageous. He's, he's bombastic and funny. And I think that it, the contrast between Trump and Clinton, and, and this is the kind of process point, is just that the way that he does things, the way that he talks about issues, the way that he appears to think through problems is much more similar to, to folks back home than someone like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. But I, I think in comparing Trump to heroin, what I was, I was trying to say is that in, in this community that's in, in pain and in a lot of anger, there are a lot of different salves that people happen upon. And I think for a lot of folks, that's Trump. And for others, it's, it's things that are much worse. Do you think that the time was just ripe for a candidate like this to ascend? Or, or, or has Trump been able to activate this constituency uh, sort of on, on, on his own political talent? Um, was there, was, there, was there going to be someone like this just based on what these communities have endured over the past decade or two or three? Yeah, I, that's, that's a really a good question and something I thought a lot about. Um, if you take stock of the big candidates in summer of 2015, the kind of establishment front runners, you had Jeb Bush, who I think is a smart and honorable guy. I think you had Marco Rubio, who I also think is a smart and honorable guy. But at, at their core... These guys were fundamentally pushing both a domestic and a foreign policy agenda that has been either a disaster or not helpful to their own base of voters. You know, I, I think in some ways the really pro-trade, the pro-tax cut, the pro-Wall Street domestic agenda combined with a foreign policy agenda that was effectively an apology for Bush foreign policy failures that really impacted Republican voters the most. And I'm, I'm happy to explain why. I mean, because, because, because literally their, their children went to fight in these wars, you mean? Exactly. If you look at the demographics of, 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 of especially the combat deaths in the U.S. military, you're talking about working and middle-income voters, not extremely poor, not extremely wealthy, who live in the South, primarily the South and in rural areas. Uh, it's not surprising that the military, you know, I think 70 to 80 percent of the military voted for George W. Bush's reelection. You know, the, the, these folks, I think, are, in hindsight, um, are really, really appalled by the Bush foreign policy failures, both for very personal reasons. You know, my, my kid went to war and died. She lost a leg and so forth, but also for reasons of pride of, of for me, and I, I'm a Marine veteran, for me, the Iraq war was kind of the, the signal event of my entire life to this point. Mm -hmm. And when I look back on it, it's, it's hard not to feel at least a little bit of a little ashamed at what we, at the end of the day, didn't accomplish. 
even though I'm obviously very proud of the people I served with. So I, I think that there's this sense in which the Republican elites really created a vacuum, and we shouldn't be all that surprised that somebody like Donald Trump filled it. Have, have the people in the, in the communities that you write about in the book, I guess in, in, in the places where you grew up, they've traditionally been Republican voters, right? I mean, I ask that because to read your description of what life is like in, in Middletown, Ohio, and, and Jackson, Kentucky— you know, it's not, it's not like exemplary of conservative values as you sort of typically imagine them. You know, you're describing families that suffer from instability and, and, and individuals who are turning to, to drugs. You, I mean, you write in a quite unvarnished way about what you see as laziness on the part of young, young people who are, who are not working. Why do conservative values, you know, which, which I associate with like strong nuclear family ties and uh, work ethic, et cetera, resonate in, in, in such places? Even if even if a lot of folks aren't living those values, you know the people that they most looked up to, whether it's their parents or grandparents or even great grandparents, in some ways really were exemplars of those values. You know the, the kind of church attendance rates right now are really low, but church attendance rates 30, 40 years ago were extremely high. And so I think it's it's maybe just entirely predictable that, that people who aren't going to church still really admire, let's say, people who, who did go to church and still admire the faith, even if it's in a sort of abstract way as opposed to a lived personal way. There aren't a whole lot of things to gather together about when you're in these communities. I write that there are a lot of community organizations and community groups that, have, that are trying in some ways to fill the void, like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous but really just aren't succeeding on the scale that church used to have. And, I, you know, it's, it's one of the few things when you go back home that nearly everyone has an opinion on. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, Trump is, Trump is the one thing that everyone, that it, it immediately turns everybody into, you know, a kind of conversation friend. And so the, there is this sense in which Trump just provides community and provides something to talk about for a group of people who really have lost most of the institutions of community in their own lives. Right. Your, your book is obviously a, a, a family memoir, and, and it offers this sort of incredibly textured portrait of, of what it's like to grow up poor in these sort of forgotten parts of the country. I'm wondering, have you gone home and spoken to people, you know, either family members or, or friends about Trump? And, and, and I'm curious if so, what, what do you hear from them? What do they say? Yeah, I, I definitely have. And, you know, I, there, there are family members who I'm extremely close to who are going to support uh, Trump. Um, you know, my, my, my stepmom, who I love dearly, is, is a big Trump supporter. And, you know, in, in the conversations I, I have with her, and I, I always bring up uh, my stepmom when, when folks ask about Trump, because, you know, she, she really, there isn't a racist or a xenophobic bone in her body. And the thing I hear from my stepmom, I, you know, again and again, is a sense of anger at the Republican elites. You know, we, we, you know, they're not doing anything. They have been in power. Uh, they have done, you know, they, they, they had the presidency from 2000 to 2008. They had the Congress from 2012 onward, and they haven't actually made anything better. The factories are still closing down. Folks are still struggling, and I think struggling both economically and spiritually. And it's, it's really just, and there is an overwhelming sense that the political lot that folks back home cast themselves with, i.e. the Republican Party, that they have failed, and that only someone who's really going to shake things up is, is even worth considering. Do you know people who have resisted Trump's message and who, who, who like people who, who it hasn't worked on, basically? Yeah, I, I think, 
the most common group of people back home for, for whom Trump's message hasn't worked. It's definitely people who are extremely religious. Okay. Um, it's you know, the, the folks who are multiple, multi-week church attendees. I, I have a few folks in mind. And I, I think to them, what makes Trump extraordinarily unattractive is, is just the way that he talks, I think, about other people. And, and again, this, this, isn't, this isn't monolithic. I know folks who go to church who, who don't like the way that he talks about other people but are going to hold their nose and vote for him anyway. But I, I think that that's, that's definitely the, the core group that has most resisted him. And it, it, is, it is, I think, a very religious and compassionate reason why they're, why they're not going to vote for him. Right. You, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I wanted to come back to it. One, one thing that's sort of consistently been surprising to me about Trump's success with working class voters is that he just doesn't seem like the kind of person they should identify with, right? He's, he's rich, he's powerful, he's been sort of a fixture of like exclusive Manhattan society for, for decades now. How does he prevail over that? It seems like a huge obstacle for him. I think a fair, you know, a, a, a fair way to, to contextualize this is Bill Clinton's candidacy. And Bill Clinton was, of course, really popular among the white working class. You know, at, at the end of the day, he was, I think, as scarily credentialed as Hillary Clinton and as Barack Obama. But what Bill Clinton did is, I think, really turn down the scary elitist side of him and really turn up the folksy side of him. So, you know, he obviously has this kind of perfect Southern accent and, and an obviously charismatic and folksy demeanor. I think that that really helped Bill Clinton the way that he conducted himself. The fact that he talked up, you know, his poor background it really resonated with people back home. It really resonated with my grandma, who was not into politics, but really liked Bill Clinton. And would often tell me, you know, he's one of the few people who's like us. You know, he, he's a poor guy. He didn't come from, from wealth and privilege like all these other politicians. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Trump, in, in a different way, really appeals to the same instinct in people, which is that he doesn't speak like he's a member of the elite. He speaks like he came from back home. He speaks like somebody, you know, like, like you know, the uncle at the Thanksgiving table. And I think that really immunizes him to charges of elitism mm-hmm. because what people see as elitism isn't necessarily money and it's not necessarily privilege in and of itself. I think it's a cultural value. It's, it's a way that people perceive how others think about them, how others conduct themselves in their daily lives. And I think Trump, for all of his wealth and privilege, acts like someone from the middle part of the country and not like a coastal elite. And that's really that 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 really resonates with people, I think. Well so what what do you what do you think, JD, it would take for these voters to realize that Trump's not one of them, right? I remember reading something a few months back about uh, an interview that Trump gave to the Times editorial board in which he said something along the lines of, and I'm not actually quoting here, but it was something like, you know, yeah, these crowds, you know, they're, they're, they're easy. You know, as soon as I start to lose them, I just say my thing about building a wall and, and they all just cheer like crazy, which read to me as contempt. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, well, you know, this is clearly going to breed resentment towards him and people are going to come to the conclusion that actually this guy is just working us. But obviously that didn't happen. I wonder, do you, do you envision a situation in which Trump loses these people's support? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the bar is so low that a lot of people do think that Trump is working them. They think that's true of everyone else. And at least, you know, in some ways, Trump is, is trying to be responsive. And I, I think that's enough. I, I don't think that a single quote or a single statement is ever going to really erode Trump's support. I think that there are a couple things that would. You know, one is 
a, I think a series, a series of statements or a series of attempts to appeal to what might be called the cultural left, I think would really, really damage credibility among, among the white working class. The problem is that, that Hillary Clinton is such a creature, I think, of what they see as cultural elitism that even though they, 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 again, they may lose some affinity for Trump, it's hard for me to see them completely jumping ship this late in the game. So, so frankly, I, I think that what is going to really change people's minds about Trump is, one, as scary as it sounds, seeing him govern and recognizing that he cannot effectively govern being the way that he is, that he cannot make their lives greater, that he cannot make the country greater. I think that would, you know, seeing that as an actual act of governance would really, really turn people against him. And at, at the end of the day, I think the, the thing that I try to think the most about is, well, what do we do after Trump? Because I, I, I don't think that, that people are going to naturally uh, gravitate away from him. J.D. Vance is the author of Hillbilly Elegy, a brand new book, which you should check out. Uh, J.D., thanks so much for being on the show. Great. Thank you. That is it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Jason DeLeon, who has the heart of a hillbilly. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, who has the brain of a mountain goat. Andy Bowers, who has the soul of a hot spring, is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Leon Mayfock. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. After today, Crooked Hillary can officially be called Lying Crooked Hillary. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.